Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think, I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day, Mark Kenny here with Democracy Sausage, a weekly politics and policy podcast, which, as you know, comes from the Australian National University. Dr. Maria Tuflaga is here, and Maria, it's been a fascinating week, really, to watch the Greens and the government negotiate over Labor's safeguard mechanism to drive down emissions of the, uh, I think it's the top 20, 215 biggest emitters, uh, towards that uh, commitment that Labor made at the election of 43% emissions cut by 2030. What's fascinating about it, and perhaps we'll talk about more about the policy detail of it later, but it's just been interesting to watch the Greens um, in this process because it's quite different, really, from the pro- the, the, the stance they adopted in 2009-10 uh, uh, when they were prepared to vote down the CPRS, the Carbon Pollution Reduction Scheme, um, on the basis that it wasn't good enough, and so they went for, you know, they, they lined up with the with the opposition, the Liberal opposition at the time, and voted it down. This time, under Adam Bant's leadership, uh, you know they're still complaining about what they've agreed to, but they've agreed to it, and it's going to go through. Yeah, well, if you think about it, the the leadership of the Greens at that time was actually dominated by the activist wing of of the Greens. You know, people like Rob Brown, people like Christine Mill. You know, people who went to jail. To save trees, okay. Mm. Adam Bant is not in that category. He he is attracted to um, greens or, or left politics through a different pathway, and you can kind of see that actually that he's more of a, a pragmatist. And I don't actually know, but I I assume that having been a, I think he's a sociology sociology lecturer I think or something like that um, before he became a politician, like that he would have known about the the German Greens, for example, which were a political party that formed in the nineteen seventies, got elected and started grinding out deals in. Germany and did so, have and have done so for decades, and and it, and it sort of shows. Uh, so, the fact that the the pragmatists are sort of in in control of the leadership of this party is probably one of the reasons why we have this outcome. But I don't think we should underestimate that it is actually difficult for for Bant to deliver this because the party is very much split between. I guess you know pragmatists and 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 activists and idealists, and there'll be lots of people who took a very different lesson out of the Rudd CPRS failure. Like they would have taken the lesson that they denied Rudd the CPRS, and then Gillard gave them a ta- climate a carbon mm. tax, right? 
sort of failing to kind of recognise that it didn't survive her government and they got nothing in the end. Yeah, it's a very good point actually because I've had a you know I've written a bit about this and had a few people commenting back to me some some with a degree of hostility about uh, the standard reductions that are made about that 2009 period. People, as you say, pointing out that well we actually uh, cooperated in 2010 to uh, come up with a with a carbon tax. Now that's all true, except that it ignore it ignores the incredibly high octane politics that was invited by that crisis of of voting down the CPRS and the dominoes that then fell as a result. We saw both major parties change their leaders. They were sort of panicked into it. We saw Tony Abbott emerge and his supporters emerge as the the real power inside the Liberal Party. We saw eventually Tony Abbott elected, of course, but in the interim, uh, Labor had changed from Rudd to Gillard. Gillard's leadership was uh, fatally compromised, really, by the terms in which she got it um, and and criticised very strongly for the partnership she had with the Greens for the creation of that tax. So there was a whole range of kind of reverberations that happened as a result of that CPRS going down uh, and the Greens, let's not forget, voted with the coalition to knock, knock off the CPRS, not for the same reasons, but nonetheless voted with the opposition to do it. And uh, and it did it did lead to essentially, a de- you know, whether, whether you blame the Greens or not, and I think people can argue about that, but the point is the failure of the CPRS led to more than a decade of, of policy paralysis really and a really toxic really polarized atmosphere around uh, the, the the whole issue of climate change policy and we still don't have an economy-wide mechanism for driving down emissions we we are now going to have this sort of you know heavy polluters thing but it's certainly not industry uh, economy-wide I I, I I mean I, I broadly agree with that analysis and I would say that labor has actually been extremely clever in really sticking the blame for the failure of the CPRS on the Greens, which actually at the end of the day, I mean, I I thought it was a, a flawed move by the Greens and it was a mistake for all the reasons you've just said. But, but Labor was the government. They didn't have to put that vote on and they chose to. Mm. You know, Rudd could have gone to an election and won a new mandate and he didn't. Absolutely. Like, you know, Labor needs to actually take responsibility for for messing that up. Yeah, it's a very good point. And indeed, many people in Labor uh, through the summer of 2009-10 thought that's what Rudd was going to do, that he was going to exactly. come out of uh, of that summer break and fairly quickly call an election on climate, which they expected at the time they would handsomely win. Uh, in Rudd blinked. He chose not to do that. He walked away from the great moral challenge. He said that's on the back burner now, effectively. That led to some internal dominoes again, and uh, and we saw the emergence of of Julia Gillard. And uh, as I say, for all the good things that she did, and for all the conscientious action of that government, it was extremely successful in terms of legislation passed. But the terms on which that came about that is cutting down a first term prime minister before that prime minister had even got to an election. Uh, solving a problem that, in many cases, the electorate didn't even realise it had—that is, uh, you know, Rudd's leadership. All of those things were, were, you know, very strong elements there, and uh, you know we can look back on it now and see one thing led to another, and 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 none of it was particularly good in the end. Mm. Anyway, we're uh, we're we're in a different place now. Uh, I th- just just one final point on the Greens. It is interesting. Um, 
as you say, to see the different way that Adam Bant has gone about this. And I remember thinking at the time of the election, uh, the one we've just had in 2022, that with the Greens finally making inroads into the lower house, it would be fascinating to watch whether they would have to become, as it were, more mainstream. That is to have an eye not to a sliver of the electorate, which you can do when you're exclusively in the Senate, but to a broader range of voters, which you have to have an eye to when you're holding lower house seats. You need to need to have a way of speaking to not just your really sort of committed supporters, but all those other people that you need to put together in order to hold those seats. And I wonder whether the fact that there are four lower house Greens uh, now in in, in the uh, Greens party room has had that kind of broadening or sobering effect on the way it's uh, assessed its position here politically. And uh, it's come up with a more pragmatic kind of framing than we've seen the party in the past. I think that's part of it. I also just think that they hold the balance of power and, and they, they didn't during the coalition years. So Labor really can't get anything through or it's very difficult for them without kind of going through the Greens and they both kind of know that. I mean, I think what is most interesting about the deal is that, you know, Bowen and Bant seem to be two quite competent politicians who are good at negotiating and they're both claiming a victory in this deal and they're both giving each other space to claim that victory. So, you know, there's clearly a recognition on both parties' parts that they've got different constituencies and they're going to emphasise different things and they're going to throw mud at each other, but it's going to be in a very civilised and tactical way. That's right. It's sort of sanitary mud. Yeah, well, it's it's mud on the arts, uh, the arts smock, right, rather than the actual suit. Yeah, nice, nicely put. Now, climate change is our bigger theme for this week, and I'm delighted to welcome back the very best experts in this area that ANU has to offer, Professor Mark Howden and Dr. Anna Greta Hunter. Professor Howden is director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions, ICEDS as it's called. He's also a vice chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Mark, welcome back to Democracy Sausage. Morning, Mark. And Dr. Hunter is a cardiologist, physician, and a Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine at ANU. She's also the co-host of our sister podcast, Policy Forum, and it's great to have you back, Anna Greta. It's so great to be in the studio with you, Mark and Mark. It's really very nice. Yes, you've got two Marks. Marks we, we, and Marks. Yeah, we'll yep. have to have to be work out who who's saying what. Um, I can only be responsible for what I say, and frankly, sometimes I wish I wasn't even responsible for that. <laughs> now, we're talking climate change. We've just been talking about, I suppose, the sort of Australian version of it and, and or at least the political dimensions of Australia's policy at the moment, uh, Mark, perhaps starting with you. But one of the reasons we're here, the key reason we're here talking about it today, isn't that it's, it's the AR6 synthesis report. Tell us what that is. So this synthesis report is, is actually the culmination of the whole sixth assessment cycle of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So there's been uh, six previous reports in this cycle. There's three special reports, uh, one on 1.5 degrees, one on land, one on the oceans, and then there's the three assessment reports on the climate science impacts and adaptation and emission reduction. And this synthesis report brings together essentially elements right across those different reports uh, in a more concise and, and hopefully slightly more readable format than the usual IPCC reports. And uh, and so so there's the intent is actually to bring together and synthesise elements, particularly of that climate science impacts and adaptation and emission reduction, which at, at, at 
perhaps uh, didn't do as much as it could have done in other circumstances. And is that because because there's a limit to uh, because there are inherent difficulties in what is essentially complex and technical information and and translating that into into sort of broader political action, broader consciousness, um, you know, sort of reaching enough people, enough lawmakers and enough members of the public to really kind of drive change? Uh, not not really. I think there's there's lots of areas where you can synthesise across those different elements mm. um, and uh, and do that quite effectively. And so we've done that in the past. In yeah, RPCC. but I, I suppose what I was saying yeah. is, 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 is the – you made the point about the synthesis report being an attempt to make it very readable, and it, and it seems to me that it is, and and it's it's an attempt therefore to try and bring together the key bits of information from previous reports, what they add up to at the moment, and and to do so in a way that's persuasive, because that's actually ultimately the goal of all of these things is to try and get everyone to understand that this is serious. Uh, absolutely, and so so I think I was drawing a distinction between. Uh, what might be thought of as a summary right, versus a synthesis, and the the reason in part why we fell short of that uh, more synthetic material was partly associated with just the governance of the process and the management of the process, and and partly to do with uh, governments uh, being somewhat risk averse and and attached to previously approved text, and so it was, you know, ends up more of a cut and paste in those circumstances, and so. Um, uh, whilst I think there's a, a lot of strong messages in there and some synthesis, uh, um, I think you know in an ideal situation we would have actually seen more of that latter. Yeah, and what's the what's the the key message out of this? Is it that um, that 1.5 degrees is rapidly becoming out of reach? I mean, the the, the report suggests that, or it finds. I think it's better better to put it that. Um, there's a greater than 50% chance of of exceeding 1.5 between now and 2040 and perhaps significantly before then. Um, there's actually a huge number of key messages in this report. Right. So as you know, it's drawing from well over 12,000 pages of dense text written by the authors over several years. Um, and uh, and so there's about 35 pages in the summary for policymaker and each of the paragraphs in those pages would probably be a, a topic in its own right for mm. a, talk, you know, a morning like this. Um, so, so some of the key messages are, yes, climate is changing and humans are the cause. Those changes are really, really significant and they're impacting on lots of systems we value. Um, we are seeing people adapting to those changes, so people are responding, uh, and uh, but they're not responding fast enough. So there's a, an adaptation gap growing between where we arguably should be and where we are. And we understand some of the barriers to that, um, but we're not overcoming those barriers. So we, we, we're not sort of taking action to the extent possible. And, and similarly, in terms of emission reduction, we see significant action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but that isn't happening as fast and as broadly enough as it needs to. So our, our aggregate emissions across the globe continue to rise when they should actually be falling very quickly. And as a result, we're likely to see us exceed 1.5 degrees in the early 2030s, uh, and we need to go to um, accelerate our emission reduction significantly, So more so than previous reports indicated. Hunter Greta, looking at this from a sort of a public policy point of view, it's this, this has been a, a kind of a revealing exercise about human psychology, really, if we think back to the first IPCC report, I think 1992, is that correct? 
1990, yeah. 1990, right. Mm. So anyway, a long time ago, right, and consistent and ratcheting warnings, you know, getting more and more urgent, and yet progress has been kind of glacial, Right, right at the time of those glaciers are yeah. disappearing as a result yeah. of progress yeah. being glacial. We won't be able to look at the glacier to work out just what that might mean. Yeah, that's yep, right. Glacial is going to become yep. some sort of arcane term. Yes. Yeah. Yep. No, there is a tremendous disconnect, isn't there, between mm. our understanding of the climate science and each time an ICPCC report comes out, the, re- the bands of certainty improve and our understanding of that direct relationship between our human behaviour and the impact it has on the world around us grows much, much, much closer, that, that tight connection mm. between human activity and the way in which we care for the planet. And we know it. I'm, I know we know it. And yet we don't see that really translating into the policy framework changes that we see. And we know that it's not just about an electricity transition. It's actually how we care for ourselves and how we care for the planet and the way in which we prioritise time and resources and effort across the whole of system, the whole of society, from the sorts of choices that we make each day, the sorts of of spaces that we create for each other, and then at a a macro level, the sort of policy impact of our government um, and the way in which we might compromise now for political short-termism without deeply considering what the long-term consequences are. Yeah, like I, I should interject there, and I think it's it's easy to say you know we haven't you know glacial progress and that sort of thing, but if you actually consider that period from 1990 to the present, we've probably roughly tripled um, the yep. size of the global economy and, and productivity across the globe. Uh, we've added huge numbers of people to the the global population, each of who is a consumer uh, and and a producer of greenhouse gases, uh, obviously variable from country mm. to country, mm. but nevertheless and. Uh, and what we've actually seen is a, a tailing off, you know, of plateauing almost of greenhouse gas emissions. So, we're so, not, so not not even not even per capita. Right? Oh well, on a per capita basis, we're going down. I think mm-hmm. um, certainly in the developing developed countries we are. Um, but uh, but if you actually look at the aggregate global emissions, uh, essentially they're they're getting towards a plateau. Like they're not they're still climbing slightly um, and that's in spite of the fact that we've we've got you know a hugely bigger economy so the the special synthesis report actually does identify that through emission reduction activities we've actually avoided the emissions of several billion tons of greenhouse gases a year uh, compared with what we would have otherwise done so whilst we might say yes we should have made a lot more progress and I, I entirely agree with that um, we should not understate the fact that we have made progress and that uh, you know now renewables are um, the biggest new source of energy across the globe is one example. You know that, so we we should both critique the fact that we haven't made more progress, but acknowledge and celebrate that we have made some. Mm. And that huge transition last year when with the federal election here in Australia, uh, where we can use the words climate change again, and we mm. can talk about the challenge that is here and now and the sorts of experiences we've had in the last five years, particularly across the Australian landscape. We can discuss that in a robust and honest way with ourselves and with our communities and with our politicians. Uh, and I think that part of what we're seeing in federal parliament in the last week or so really reminds reminds me of just how much that political landscape, the policy landscape has shifted through the changing government last year. Let's take a very quick break and be back in a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. You're with Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University each week. Um, and I'm talking with Dr. Anna, Anna Greta Hunter and Professor Mark Howden, and of course, Dr. Maria Tafaga. Um, Maria, I suppose, in a sense, the message that we got just before the break uh, that is, is sort of both things, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the alarm around how slow this process has been. But as, as Mark quite rightly says, we also need to acknowledge the progress that's been made. I wonder what you think about how important that is in sort of, a, I suppose, a sort of a psychological sense that we need to, if we, don't, if we don't think we're making any progress, then in a way it sort of almost feeds a sort of a helplessness loop, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. That's exactly right, and um, and I thought that was actually a really good point that uh, Mark made in that in that context. I mean, in general, the sort of consensus that is sort of emerging in the psychological literature around uh, this stuff is that hope is really kind of important f- to get people to channel useful action right so so hopelessness is not at all kind of helpful and um and that's sort of one of one of the reasons why really alarmist messages kind of shut people down and the other sort of important frame is to connect it to people in in the sense of what they love Mm. so that's usually the other humans around them for, for most people and you know obviously for people who are much more aware of what is going on with the planet like they would also be feeling um, distress or and an emotional connection to the environment but the reality is is that that most people don't that's why we're in the mess that we're in and so we have to find messages of um, like connections of of love emotional connections like they've got to be um, emotional for people to actually kind of respond and they need to be channeled into a form of of agency otherwise people sort of shut down and and just pretend it's not an issue yes i'll take a point in a sec mark i just wanted to respond quickly to that now in terms of uh, observing again encouragingly that really the last i think it's the last five certainly the last four elections that have occurred and have occurred in australia have favored the party that has had a more progressive position mm. on climate um, and I, I think that does contrast with where we were in, say, 2013 with the election of the Abbott government after the debacle that I was referring to earlier, um, wherein it became quite obvious, and I think it was often said, that Australians cared about climate change right up to until it was affecting their hip pocket. And then when there was a choice between those two things, they would always back the hip pocket. Now, that may be true now, even in the sense that we're in a very difficult, you know, 
uh, sort of um, cost of living crisis, as it's described. People are doing it very tough. There's there's increasing homelessness and a whole range of other pressures. I'm not trying to downplay those things, but there is also a sense that we see governments with more progressive agendas, particularly on climate. And the 2022 election was very clear on this, I think, with the election of the Teals, for example, that people are prepared to take this issue more seriously than they were. They're not yep. kicking it down the road so easily now because the evidence is is piling up. Mark? Oh, look, I, I agree with that and, and also with what Maria just said. And if we look at this uh, synthesis report, um, it's sort of almost like equal measures of concern and hope. Mm. Um, uh, in in that report, so you know, concern based on the the changes that are happening already um, and the future projections of those, which are, are, are very concerning, but also hope in the sense that we we have a lot of the solutions sort of in in the bag. Uh, we're just not necessarily applying them uh, as rapidly as as well as we we could. And so um, so the solutions are you know generally available. Um, we're just not using them. So so there's there are some you know good reasons for hope there. Um, and I think when we we look at that that report, it actually does identify that um, if we if we look say the, at the economics side of things, is that the what is emerging is that action on climate change is now economically rational. That's what one of yes. the messages from yes. this report says: is that um, reducing emissions uh, costs a lot less. Um, than letting it rip, and uh, and so um, and that's not even taking into account the avoided damages from you know losing our coral reefs and things, or the benefits from reducing fossil fuel uh, production, such as you know deaths and illness from uh, air pollution, and so so we're getting to this this stage where you know the the economic case is very strong for for action, the the social case is very strong for action, the environmental case is very strong for action. And, and I think Australians have long got this message. So if you look at the Lowy Institute poll since 2017, 90% of Australians have said that they want more action on climate change. And that's been consistent, you know, within plus mm. or minus one or two percent each year. And so um, the argument that, uh, you know, things have changed significantly just in the last year or two isn't supported by that evidence. It's actually people have been concerned about climate change. It's just that the media narrative has changed a little bit and the political narrative has changed just over the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was at a very interesting launch of a book last night uh, called A Feminist Handbook, uh, and it, um, it, uh, it has a number of editors, uh, two of which are Professor Jackie True and Marian, Emeritus Professor Marion Saw here from the ANU. Uh, and it was launched by Virginia Hausiger and Natasha Stott Despoyer. And I, I'm mentioning this because the same sort of dynamic uh, was in play in this in this discussion that happened at the launch. And one of the key messages was about this idea of making sure that we acknowledge the achievements that have been made, mm. uh, because because if you don't, you know, if you take them mm. for granted or whatever, then you you can fall into that sort of sense of of hopelessness and not 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 feeling like you're you're making progress. And progress is important. Um, I think the problem for, for for some of the feminist advances, though, is that they, of course, can be just got rid of by the stroke of a pen or by the stacking of the Supreme Court or, or whatever. Um, you know, we saw the Swedish right wing government get rid of the, that country's feminist foreign policy just with the stroke of a pen, mm. um, and and we know, you know, what 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 things are going backwards in that area in places like Afghanistan, Iran, the United States and and elsewhere. So, uh, you know, that's a concern. And so I take some comfort from your point, Mark, that 
in, in the case of climate change uh, policy and the changes that are being made, there's this economic underpinning to it, which which means that advances aren't as likely to be rolled back. They, they get they get baked into the into the into the rational economy, as it were. Yep. Absolutely. The the other part I think of this is not treating climate change in isolation, but actually linking climate change to health issues and yes, linking climate yes. change to biodiversity achievement and linking climate change to uh, social justice issues. And so having a much more integrative approach. And so again, sort of almost like baking it into mm. the, the rest of the things that we want to achieve. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Anna Greta, that that point about about health, about um, illness from pollution, these are the sorts of areas you're you're uh, very uh, interested in. Yep. Are you encouraged by changes there, or is the is the is the yeah. situation? No, I mean I think drawing on what Mark has just been saying is that we are seeing this this shifting of the narrative over the last decade or two or three. I think the number of people who are talking about system wide integration, not just for issues like climate change, but what health and well being might be for our our population. Um, and we might see that. I'm looking forward to looking at our new federal budget this year and working out how these concepts of well-being might then flow through because a well-being type framework, at least theoretically, might allow us to see the benefit of the environment and our health and our, our, the health of our population as well as our economic prosperity alongside each other. Um, and that's quite a different way of thinking for how governments have worked, at least in the Australian context, historically. Uh, and it is a remarkable opportunity to contend with both the healthcare system crisis and an environmental crisis, be it climate change, be it biodiversity, be it the loss of our uh, beautiful places, mm. uh, and the reprioritization around the sorts of things that matter, coming back to what Maria was saying about love and joy and play, mm. and the sorts of things that actually, it's not rational economic behavior that makes decisions for so many of us, it's actually those emotive factors which really drive so much of our human behavior, and certainly it's what gives meaning to our life, it's what, what helps us to, to get out of bed in the morning. Um, so tying those elements together across a whole of policy change is fascinating. It is, and, isn't and it? I, I really a... am. I'm fascinated to see. I, I do think we're seeing not just glimmers of hope, but I think we're seeing some the beginnings of some significant structural change away from a you know a traditional neoliberal type approach uh, towards a much more holistic caring. Yeah, that compartmentalization hasn't served it's as not well. Helpful. Really, it's no. really not helpful. And I, you know, I think it was talking. You were mentioning the the change in political discussion in the last couple of elections in Australia around climate change, that there's a change in language more broadly. We've got politicians much more overtly speaking about kindness and caring. Mm. And that that shift of language from economic rationalism through to a caring, community-centred approach, I mean, it's part of the success for community-based independence and it's part of that whole transition of how our political system works, but it's also a change in focus for government. And I, I personally welcome that I immensely because I do think that that translates to improvements in health indices and, and really gives us the sort of space we need to contend with the challenges, not just climate change, but the multitude of challenges that we're facing today and then into the future. It's true, but I mean, at the same time, I, I, I can't help but think that that really encouraging message does apply to a, a comfortable yep. uh, developed country like Australia. Yep. One of the things that we know about climate change is that it's making areas uh, uninhabitable. Yep. It's making there are predictions of uh, a number of global cities that will essentially become unlivable as a result of climate change. Yep. Um, 
you talk about uh, decisions that people make in terms of uh, emotional, uh, you know, having emotional, legitimate emotional yeah. bases. Um, one of those emotional attachments is to country, is yeah. to land, is to place. Yeah. Um, so, Mark, how do we talk about catastrophic risk? How do we talk about what the science of the IPCC report, and I could actually direct this to either Mark. Mm. Perhaps uh, you should direct but, it to him because I already know I be, can't answer Because it. we've touched on it. <laughs> and we, we know, you know, every time I hear the IPCC report discussed, and I was at the ANU event just recently talking about the IPCC report, that, that there's this delicate balance act, act between being honest about the science and then maintaining hope. Yeah. Um, and, and you can potentially hold both of those two things in your hands, but it's a really complex balancing act. And when we're, when we're honest about the sorts of risk, and it's, it's, it's the developing world potentially more uh, dominantly, but it's not just the developing world. It's it's a global phenomena, climate change. It will impact and has impacted already across, across our beautiful country and across really important parts of our biodiversity that we all value um, and that we can see it will uh, affect, a, what's the estimate, 250, 500 million people who are going to be likely displaced. And we already have some internal displacement in the Australian context and mm. in the developed world as well as in the developing world. Um, so I don't want to other it. I don't want to make it to, into a, something that that doesn't require us to be emotionally engaged, um, that we can put into a, a different context. I think we can all step up to, into that space. And I do think, I guess I see hope in that language of kindness and compassion. I see that that allows us to be caring for communities locally and also recognising the consequence of our action on a global scale, which is what we need to be able to do. Adaptation, local, and mitigation is a global phenomenon. We need to be able to hold both of those two things with a vision for what we're doing today, how we care for each other right now, but also thinking about that long-term horizon. Mark, can you advance on that? Oh, I, I, I guess... One reflection on this is that things like the IPCC report are a small piece of the jigsaw. Um, I mean, they you could argue they're an important piece, but there are they're still small. And um, uh, the the importance of IPCC reports, I think, is that it is a a collaboration or a, a co-design or co-construction practice between the research community and the policy community and the politicians to some extent. And uh, and and through that. That you actually get essentially ownership of the science um, into the policy domain, and and so that's I think a huge achievement because it actually means that effectively they own the results and they can't dismiss it because they've actually agreed to and approved the results, and so that's a, it's an important step forward. So that so actually does in a sense cement the science as part of um, the picture. Uh, but to actually build the solutions that Anna Greta was talking about, you have to have a lot, lot more than the science and you have to actually have, uh, I think, in a sense, you know, that modern politics that you were just talking about, you know, the um, the politics which is actually human-faced um, politics mm. and that actually recognises, um, you know, diversity and difference and acknowledges and celebrates that. And so, so I think, you know, what we've put together through the IPCC process um, is a start, um, and and it's a it's an important part of the piece, uh, but it actually requires a much broader movement to actually implement that in a way that actually uh, maximises the benefit from it. Well, one of the advances there, and I suppose it's sort of fairly mechanical in a sense, but is what we were talking about at the start of this podcast, which is that Australia is on the verge of having an agreed mechanism for driving down pollution emissions, at least of the in, in the industrial sector. Um, 
what's your what what do you take from that is that is that also encouraging i mean do you have any observations about whether it's adequate or not uh, whether I mean, again you know you could use the term it's a, it's a good start but we always have to worry that sometimes these things can be like a pressure valve they can take some of the impetus out of the broader push for what is actually wider structural reform um <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, perhaps just uh, before commenting on that policy is that, um, again, coming from the IPCC synthesis report, there's a, a little table in there which shows emission reductions for uh, all greenhouse gases and for carbon dioxide for 1.5 and 2 degrees across different time slices, so 2030, 2035, right. 2050. Um, the message there is a uh, 43% reduction uh, by 2030, but that's across the 2019 baseline, not the current baseline that Australia has. And so it's a, a different baseline. Which, which is 2005. 2005. Yeah. And so since 2005, we've roughly reduced our emissions by about 20%, uh, uh, largely through reductions in land clearing. And so so the the baseline assessed and um, expressed by the IPCC is, is a much tougher emission reduction than the current one that we've signed up to nationally. So it's an important point there. Um, it also does the 2035 um, number, which is a 60% reduction against 2019. And and so that that's a, a 2035 is a really important sort of in a midterm, you know, safety check mm. in terms of progress. And and that's going to be challenging. 60% is going to be really challenging uh, given the, the structure of our economy and the growth and, and population growth in the um, economic activity. So, so that's the that's the sort of bigger scenario. We have to actually be thinking about what our policy settings are there to deal with, and uh, and I think it's probably fair to say that uh, in an ideal world, uh, we would actually have a comprehensive economy wide approach to emission reductions. Uh, we'd have um, something which essentially put a price on on greenhouse gas emissions, and and important to think it's more than just carbon, as in shorthand for carbon dioxide, because there's lots of other other greenhouse gas emission gases mm. than carbon dioxide. So we need to be thinking about all of the gases, not just CO2. And uh, and we need to be thinking about um, complementary policies which actually incentivize people to change. And so, so part of the reason why we haven't got change is, uh, you know, amongst other things, people haven't got a lot of cash at the moment, so they can't necessarily go out and buy their in a new EV even if they want to. Mm. And so even though the, the long-term whole-of-life economic case for electric vehicles is now pretty solid um, in, in Europe, it's, you know, if you're running a... Um, a commuter van sort of thing, uh, the lifetime costs of running that in Europe are about half for uh, an electric vehicle compared with a, an internal combustion vehicle. So the, so the economics of moving to electric vehicles is really strong with variations across jurisdictions and type of vehicles. But how to actually incentivize people to make that change, how to actually start to disincentivize um, activities which uh, generate continue to generate greenhouse gas emissions, you know, fossil fuel subsidies, one which was targeted in that IPCC report and identifying that as, as a major expenditure which actually prolongs um, the survival of those very emissions um, that are going to cause problems. And just our existing fossil fuel infrastructure chews up our entire 
budget that's consistent with 1.5 degrees, mm. uh, our entire emissions budget. So um, let alone new coal, oil and gas you know, coming on board, which will completely chew up, almost completely chew up the two degrees emissions budget yeah. without having us having food to eat and transport on our roads, yeah. houses over our heads, et cetera. And so um, you can see that uh, we need to have an approach which actually adds to the goods and takes out the bads. So this is trying to translate the science into the lived experience without scaring people, okay? And that's the challenge is that mm. we really do need to act very quickly and the reason to act very quickly is actually partly coming back to human survival and the way in which we live, the sorts of things that we value, the world around us. Um, and yet when we when we begin to explore that space, it can be confronting and people do shut down and I absolutely completely understand that. But it's making that link which is so important because it should be driving political change and I said to my children this morning over breakfast that, that we've actually seen some action on climate change. It's it's the first effective climate change policy that, to, to come through for quite a while, and it's a great thing to see. But there is an element of compromise, and I actually don't think it was idealistic for, for us to be talking about no new coal and gas. I think the Australian population are very much uh, on side with this, and certainly across places like the Teal independent seats in inner cities, Sydney and Melbourne, there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm for not just pretending to contend with climate change, but really doing it well. Um, I actually think we've been asking our politicians to be a bit more brave. And I think that having a large crossbench actually creates an environment where government can be braver than it has been previously. And so it's a step in the right direction. It's great to have policy. It's great that there's been such extraordinary, robust discussion on the Hill this week. And yet, will it be enough for our future? Will it be enough for the way in which we age, for the way in which our children enjoy their life? Um, we may not have actually done enough this week, and we could potentially have done more. I think that's a very good point. It's a good point to end on. Uh, I'd certainly concur with that. I, I you know, my, my own feeling is that um, Adam Bant had a very good point when he was arguing that continuing to, I mean, he used the term pour petrol on, you can't put the fire out when you're pouring petrol on it, which I heard him say probably a hundred times. Um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, you know, the, the idea of, of having new oil and gas or coal and gas in particular was the, the thing he was talking about, projects opening up, uh, consuming all of that extra budget, um, of, that car, of that pollution budget was, um, uh, it did seem sort of counterintuitive, it seemed nonsensical, but um, perhaps with the changed investment arrangements now uh, that, that will, uh, or considerations that will now flow as a result of what is in some ways now a cap and trade scheme, albeit not economy-wide, uh, because there is now a cap on emissions that there wasn't before uh, as a result of these negotiations. So perhaps our political system has delivered in part and delivered at least in the right direction and we'll see some further progress. That's, I guess, what we have to hope rather than everyone thinking, right, job done and sort of sitting on their hands and not doing anything more because mm. the whole debate here, Mark, I suppose, just as a final word to you, the whole debate around this has been about this notion of the closing window, hasn't it? Uh, if we think right back to 1990, that's that's always the difficult thing in this debate is uh, the later you leave the action, the more the more sort of dr drastic that action needs to be. 
not only drastic but also costly, costly and risky, yeah. and uh, yeah. and so we're just setting ourselves up for for, for more and more difficult transitions. Uh, uh, but your point is that we can't just rest on the laurels once this particular policy is in. We actually need to, uh, you know, build the understanding that we we need something better than 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 this particular policy, it's political achievement notwithstanding. Yeah. And that means uh, we we need to have those conversations about how people can take action themselves, and through that actually improve their lot. And so you know that ABC program um, that uh, the Planet B one was an example of that. You know mm. how people could. Uh, you know, change their emission reductions and save money, and mm. uh, you know, be healthier, etc., and Im- improve their family life and various other and feel better positive for things. it too. Yeah, indeed, yeah. and and so I think uh, this is going to go on for decades. Um, there is no stopping in terms of how we need to approach this. Uh, when we get one policy in place. We need to see how to improve it. When we get one technology in place, we need to be developing a better one. We need to invest in the new solutions, the research and development that generates the options that are going to be globally saleable. You know, we come up with good and you know solutions for agriculture here in Australia. They're transferable across the globe. Massive export opportunities right across the board. So we need to be grasping this not and seeing it not just as a risk, but also an opportunity for Australia to have a much more powerful place across the econ- uh, the globe and a much more positive influence across the globe. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a really interesting discussion. Uh, I hope that I hope you've enjoyed it uh, listening to this and uh, can take some some inspiration, hopefully some some uh, some optimism about where we are because it's imp- an important element of all of this. But uh, yes, our policymakers need to stay on it and get more serious because we need to move on this very quickly. And uh, it's been terrific to talk about this with you today. Thanks, Anna Greta Hunter and Mark Howden. And goodbye to you, Maria, as well. And that's it for Democracy Sausage this week. I should make the point, as I have uh, recently, that we do have an email address. It is democracysausage at anu.edu.au. So by all means, get in touch with us there if you've got any suggestions or feedback. We're always eager to, uh, to read that. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Talk to you again next week. Bye for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.